ask you to turn your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we have mentioned already over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at this chapter in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. Entering into the Easter season, just two weeks away from Easter, we want to spend our time here. As Paul is writing to the Corinthians, we want to be reminded that Corinth was one of the most important cities in ancient Greece. In fact, it was the capital that was made by Rome after they conquered it. It was also one of the most populated cities in ancient Greece. Paul, in the book of Acts, had left Athens and had gone to Corinth and maybe tired, maybe uh, having so many difficulties even in preaching. Paul wanted to, to even rest for a minute in Corinth and he met a friend there named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Both of them were tent makers. And that's where we learned that that was the Apostle Paul's trade as he spent time with them making tents in Corinth. But at the same time, of course, Paul was called to the advancement of the gospel. So he went into the synagogue and he began to preach and to teach. There, Paul got frustrated with the Jews that were in Corinth as they would not listen and kicked him out. So he shook the sand off and was getting ready to leave. But the Lord told him to remain and to stay, and he did. He stayed there for some 18 months, as Corinthians tells us, or Acts tells us in Acts chapter 18. So this letter that we have to the Corinthians was written, as Paul puts it there in chapter 1, verse 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth and those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. And so ultimately, Paul is writing this to those who believed in the gospel, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, remember that's being set apart. He's writing this to those who believed in the gospel in Corinth, the church that had gathered there from the time, of, uh, the, the time that he had preached and proclaimed the gospel. So Paul writes this letter, and it's not the first letter he has written. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul had written them before. So this is the second letter, but this is the letter, the first one that has been saved for us through the Holy Spirit by God so that we can learn from it. And as we turn to this letter, we find that Paul is not pleased with how the Corinthian church is conducting themselves. In fact, the Apostle Paul will address 10 problems or controversies, if you will, in the Corinthian church in this letter. And he starts off on fire about it. He begins to tell them that first problem where they're choosing leaders and saying, I am of Paul or I am of Cephas or I am of someone else. Paul says, this is wicked. It's evil. So Paul is addressing these Corinthians and going to correct the problems that he has heard. I've often said, and I know some good brothers who are pastoring churches with the name of Corinth Baptist Church, but that doesn't sound like a place I want a pastor, to be honest. Not a kind place where everybody's got everything together like here at Taylor's First. But Paul is writing this to address these problems that they are facing. 
starting with being divided over leadership, going through lawsuits, and how do you handle lawsuits against one another? My goodness, how do you deal with sexual immorality within the church? How do you administer the Lord's Supper properly? For some of them are coming to the Lord's Supper to get full of food and not full of truth and the gospel. How do you use your gifts and use them well within the church? Paul is addressing all of these problems and others. And in our chapter this morning, the issue comes up about the resurrection. They had misunderstood some things about the resurrection. And if you, if you remember, and we'll discuss this in the next couple weeks, just before in Athens, the same type people in the same type area, when it got to the issue of resurrection, they all left Paul. They said, this is crazy. We can't believe in the resurrection. And so Paul comes to the Corinthians. He wants to make sure that if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you might as well throw everything else out as well. So this morning, what we want to do for the next few weeks, really, is look to chapter 15, in particular this morning, verses 1 through 11, as the apostle Paul lays the foundation for the conversation about resurrection. Paul writing, answering this question now. So chapter 15 basically stands alone, if you will, as each question is being answered. Paul says, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it, it, it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It's good for us. We ask that you would take your word by the power of your spirit and apply it to our hearts so that we, we God, as your people, could be better believers in you. And if there's someone here today, Father, that does not know you, has not received the free gift of the gospel in their life and in their hearts, that today would be the day that they no longer turn from that free gift, but they trust it. Help no one here to be believing in vain, but to be believing with everything they have. God, we thank you for your word, and it is good for us. And we ask now that you would bless the preaching and proclamation of it in Christ's name. Amen. Before the Apostle Paul moves into the conversation about resurrection, he says he needs to remind the Corinthian believers of a few things. Now, when he says here, brothers in our passage, we need to know he's referring to brothers and sisters. He's referring, using this term as a collective term in the plural. So he's referring to everyone in the Corinthian church who has believed. He wants to remind them of something, remind them of the heart of his message. 
the very heart of it, the very center of it. He's saying, I need to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. This is what Paul preached, he says. This is what I preached to you. He says this down in verse 11. It was I or they. We preach this. You believe this. He's reminding them of what he proclaimed and what they believe. Now, for the Apostle Paul, we need to remember a principle that he works with. One that we saw over in the book of Philippians when the Apostle Paul said in chapter 3, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So it is with the gospel. To preach this same message every single Sunday is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. In other words, the minister of Christ Jesus can never preach the gospel too much. And I, I say that in the simplest form. In fact, I say it in, in, in a way to get you to understand that there is no Christian message that can be proclaimed without the gospel. That it could be self-help, it could be an encouragement to you, it may be something there in morality, but the gospel is at the center of Christian preaching. In fact, Paul says this, I know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what my message is. And so Paul is saying that when he gets to heaven, his primary responsibility is to fulfill the call of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, and he is pretty confident of this, as well am I, that when he gets to heaven, Jesus is not going to look at him and say, you know what, Paul, you preached me too much. You know what, Paul, you, you talked about me and the gospel a little too much. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Paul wants to make sure when he stands before the Lord Jesus, he can say that every time I had the opportunity, I proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope of salvation, that's what I proclaimed. And he says, in fact, I want to remind you of that. This is what I preached. This is what you believed. Let me remind you of the same thing this morning again, that what we proclaim then, the gospel, is no new message. In our world today, 2020, what is it, 22 now? 2022, our world has a frantic lust for innovation, looking for the new constantly. What's the latest and greatest? What's the new thing we can have, but not us here? We don't pursue after this frantic lust that the world looks to. We preach the old truths. We preach what, what Paul proclaimed here in Corinthians. We preach what he received from Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus that day. We preach what, what Jesus proclaimed to his disciples and, and told them to go and tell others. That's what we proclaim. The same gospel that saved the apostle Paul. The same one that saved John and Peter. The same one that, that, that saved the ladies there, Mary and, and the mother of Jesus and James' brother. The same one that saved all of them is the same one that saves us today. I don't have a new message. I don't have a new message for any of us. And if you're here today looking for some new innovation to help you, trying to figure out what, what can he tell me that's, that's new that could be a, a self-help or a new diet plan or whatever else that may be, if you're looking for something like that, I don't have anything like that. You're in the wrong place. But what you will find in this word what you'll find, hopefully, through the proclamation of the gospel this morning is that ancient truth that still stands as the hope and salvation of all who believe in it. In fact, I was thankful this week doing 
little digging around the church. It gets about middle of the afternoon. I better get up or I'm going to take a nap. I'm just telling y'all. You know what I'm saying? My afternoon constitution. And so I get up and I start walking and I found an old book. An old book that was present at the first gathering of our church. And in that old book, it has a handwritten there in nice script. I love my own handwriting. I'm just going to let y'all know. I, I won best. I won't tell the second service this, but y'all need to know. Y'all my buddies. I won best handwriting award at Red Bank Elementary School for five years in a row. So I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. But man, this handwriting is great. The penmanship's beautiful. Written in 1864, telling the history of the church. But as I'm flipping through, looking at this old book, there in that same section, it has a section called Articles of Principles. These are what they agreed upon as they gathered together the church at Chick Springs, as Taylor's First was called at the beginning. As they gathered together, these are the truths they agreed upon. Article 1, we believe in one only true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, three in one. Article 2, we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and the only true rule of faith and practice. It goes on to another article. There's 12 of them. I won't read them all, but another one says, we believe that sinners are justified in the sight of God only by the merits of Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying is as our church gathered there in that first days, over 150 years ago, almost 160, this is what they said they believe, and today it is still what we believe. Because Paul is reminding them that the truth of Christ Jesus is your only hope, and there's nothing else. Don't get caught up in the innovative. Don't get caught up in what they're trying to tell you is the new, latest, and greatest. Know that it is this truth that you receive, this gospel that you receive, that you have been saved with and that you will continue to be saved through. And what is this gospel then? If that's the truth that we hold on to, what is it? And I hope you've heard this. In fact, I hope that at this time of the service, you can preach this part of the passage yourself. Because what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? We know that the gospel begins with God. The one and only true and living God, as our forefathers said. The holy creator, maker of everything, made it all out of nothing, spoke it into existence, fashioned mankind out of dust and breathed his own very breath into them, putting within them his own image so that they can honor him and glory in his name. This God, who is holy and righteous, who created everything since he made it all, he invented it all, he gets to set and establish the rules of it all, right? Here's how you must live as my people bringing me glory. Here's how you must live. We believe in that one holy God who sets the rules and establishes it. Man, while the gospel begins with God, it goes straight to man, created in the image of God. But instead of following God, turned away from him and rebelled against him. Instead of trusting God as the one who knows better, believed, man believed they knew better than him. And instead of following him, they rebelled against him and sinned against him. So instead of being under his blessing, they're now under his wrath. For as the scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of those sin is death. The gospel begins there. Now you may be looking at me and let me remind you of what the old preacher says. Before you can ever get a person saved, you got to get them lost. Because up until this point, this doesn't sound like good news, does it? 
The word gospel means good news. And I just said God's a holy creator and man has rebelled against him and is under his judgment and death. There's no hope out of it on their own. This seems, calling it good news, but it doesn't seem like good news up until this point. But now we come to the heart of the gospel, Paul says. The heart of that good news, the heart of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners from death and hell. That's the heart of the good news. Christ Jesus has come. God is holy and a righteous judge. Man is sinful and deserves death and punishment. But Christ Jesus has come. The good news is that God did not leave us in our sin and our rebellion. The good news is that God did not leave us under his judgment only. He gave us an option. Even though we deserve death, he sent Jesus Christ to redeem his people. Even though we deserve his judgment, he sent Jesus Christ to bring no condemnation for his people, to deliver them out of the bondage of slavery and sin. Some points here from our passage. Looking at verse 3, the first thing we see about this gospel is that this gospel is God's plan to save his people from their sin. The Lord God made promises. Even in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and the good old days were over and the curses came, God, even in that moment, made promises to them that he will come, crush the head of the serpent that has brought the, the disturbing of the peace of God here upon his people and his place. He will crush them and he will redeem his people. He made a promise even in the midst of that that he will come and do that. And throughout all of the Old Testament, what we see is that promise unfolding, that mystery unfolding and unveiling. And as that mystery unfolds and unveils, when we get to the New Testament, we find out that the one who's fulfilled all the promises of God to redeem and save his people is Jesus Christ, and he is here. Here Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. This message is primary. This is first. There's no salvation without it. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He says this was God's plan. If you go back and you read and, and, and you look through the Old Testament, you'll find this is exactly how it was supposed to be. The Messiah would come, he would save, he would redeem. Sins of his people would be placed upon him like that scapegoat in Leviticus and he would take it away and take it as far as the east is from the west. The sins would be placed upon him and he will receive the very wrath of God upon himself in the place of his people. In our place condemned he stood, the Old Testament tells us. We see that that's the case. All of that's there. And as Paul is even saying this to some who were, who were Jews or in that tradition, he's saying, if you look back in the Old Testament, everything is there to show us and to prove to us Christ Jesus is the one who has come. It's all according to his word. This is God's plan. It may not have been how we would have planned it out. It may not have been how we would have written it up. But if it was how we would have planned it, or how we would have written up, we'd still all be in trouble, and I'd have nothing to share with us this morning. But what we share is God's plan of salvation for us, in accordance with scriptures. Some people look at it. Paul even writes to the Corinthians, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. 
Some look at it as folly and foolishness to think that God would send his son to die on a cross. Some look at that as folly and foolishness. And who, who would come up with and conjure up such a thing? But the Lord looks at it as his glorious fulfillment of the promises that bring salvation to his people. It's his plan. The gospel is not only God's plan. The gospel is an historical event. It's a historical event. Look at what Paul says. He says, I'm telling y'all what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Paul is not mentioning these things as if this is just some parable that we could hold on to, as if this is just some encouragement, maybe some, some fairy tale. He's saying, no, nah, y'all remember these things happened. And in order for you to also remember, he says, not only did he die, buried, and was raised, he then appeared to Cephas, which Peter. And then he appeared to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time in one place. And when you go back and you read in the Gospels, you see all of these appearances of Christ there after his resurrection. In other words, there are so many, many witnesses of what Christ has done for us. You want to take it to trial, I can bring witness after witness after witness after witness that will tell you that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, you need to know, nobody was, was discrediting the fact that he died. Everybody saw that. Everybody talked about it. And, and let's not forget that the day Jesus died was no ordinary day. That Good Friday was a day that the sun went black in the middle of the afternoon. That Good Friday was a day that the earthquake so much rocks began to split. And if you remember, when Jesus died, his death brought life. And it brought life so much so that people got up out the tombs even when he died that day. Nobody was going to deny that that day happened. Nobody was denying that. But what about the resurrection? Maybe somebody stole his body. Maybe some other thing happened. Maybe something else went on. Maybe all this other stuff. Paul says, well, let me bring the witnesses to you. I got Cephas. I got 500 I can line up before you. I got the ladies at the tomb. I got all of them. I got 500 I can put. And then Paul says, not only that, I'll testify myself. I'll put my life on the line to tell you that I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus as I was going, Paul says. I have seen him alive. This is true. Not only did it happen, I know it has happened with my own eyes the resurrection has so many witnesses Paul says that it's true this happened and we know it and we can prove it even not only that the gospel was accomplished entirely by Jesus Christ Paul says it was Christ who died and it was Christ who rose again every part is important the fact that he was born of a virgin is important the fact that he lived a perfect life is important. The miracles that he displayed are all important to demonstrate who he is. The teaching that he gave us is of vast importance, of course. Paul is saying all of that is important. But all of that can be set aside if he didn't die and rise again. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate. It's the, it's the, the, the ultimate of all of the story. The pinnacle of it all. It proves that everything he said was true. It proves that everything he ever did was right. 
It proves that he truly did take the sins of his own people upon himself and was raised again on the third day. That resurrection is the linchpin of our salvation. And if it didn't happen, we're all to be pitied here today singing about he's going to come back. Paul says, but it did happen. And Christ has accomplished it all for us. And there's nothing left. He conquered the grave. He took our sin on the cross. He conquered the grave And though the wages of our sin is death, unless one dies in our place, unless one pays the price we owe, the wages of our sin is death unless somebody comes and rescues us from that death. And that one who rescued us is Jesus Christ himself. Those wages were paid by Christ Jesus. And he redeemed us, Paul says. And that, my friends, is the heart of of the good news. God is holy and he is a righteous judge that demands righteousness from his people. And we as his people have rebelled against him and we are unrighteous sinners that deserve death and eternal hell. But God, even though we deserve that, sent his son to die in our place, to redeem us and save us, and just to prove that his son is true, just to prove that his son accomplished what he sent him to do, God brought him back to life on the third day. And now we don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Savior. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now there's a fourth part of that gospel. God is holy, man is sinful, Christ is our Savior. But there's a fourth part that all of us need to hear in this place, and Paul brings out here. That fourth part is the fact that we must respond to this gospel. God, man, Christ, response. We must respond to this gospel. What is our response to this truth? And Paul is reminding these Corinthians. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. You receive this. You see, the gospel is to be offered freely. In other words, as we come here today, you don't have to pay for this message. As we get here today, you don't have to do something to earn this message. You don't have to come in here and worry about what you get your life in order with. In fact, the apostle Paul says, look at me. I was the worst of the worst. Look at me. I was persecuting Christians. I was the chief of sinners. I didn't deserve this message. I didn't deserve any other one. But it was offered to me freely, and I took it. I took it, and it's only by grace. And so this message comes to us today freely. And what I proclaim to you today is the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You ain't got to pay for it. It's already been paid for you. Jesus has paid it all. And it's the free offer here that all you have to do is receive it. It's a gift that you must receive. Paul says, this gospel that I preached, you received it. You took it. You believed it. You got it. It was a free gift and a free offer, and you you took it in. It's all by grace that it has come to you. It's nothing that you've earned. It's nothing that you've done. It's all by grace. And once you receive it then, Once you receive it, Paul says, you must live in it. We never get over the gospel. He says, you received it. That's in the past. And now you stand in it. That's where you set your mark. 
When Paul says the word you stand in it, what he's saying is, is this is what you rest on. This is where you stand. This is what the truth that you hold fast to. All else is sinking sand, but this is the rock that is the foundation of all of life, the gospel. And we never get over the gospel. In fact, I remind myself every day, I try to, that I'm a sinner that is desperate, has desperate need of a Savior. And that Savior has come to me not by anything I have done, but what He has done. He brought that message to me through His dear servants who proclaimed it earlier, and I received it then. And every day I wake up, I'm reminded I don't deserve the goodness of God, but He has given it to me and granted it to me by His grace. So today, I'm going to stand on it. I got nowhere else to go. I mean, who do I have in heaven but you, as the psalmist says? Where else am I going to turn? This is the message of life and salvation, Paul says. So here, you received it, and today you stand on it, past and present. But also, Paul says, our response has a future tense to it as well. Our response must have a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Not only do we stand in it today, as you're living it out, you will also hope on it. Hope in his promises to bring you home to heaven forever. I told y'all I love those songs we sing about the coming of the Lord for us. You know, that, that cloud be rolled back like a scroll. Or that shout of acclamation that comes. That moment that Jesus comes to receive us. But I'm not just thinking about that moment. I'm thinking about that moment of death that so many of us fear. So many of us are concerned about how it may come or what it may be. And we may be concerned of how death may come to us. We may be concerned of how, how this old body fades out and goes out. But what we as believers need not be concerned about is where we go when it's over. And that's not because of anything we have done. That's because of what Christ has done for us. And this is what Paul says. It's this gospel that you hope in even to the very moment of death that when your eyes close here, you will open them up and see your Savior face to face. This is the future tense of it. And while we love the gospel and we thank God for the gospel and we live in the gospel, there will never be a day for now and all eternity that we don't praise God for the gospel. In heaven, we thank God for what Christ has done for us. We praise him. And Paul says, this is it. This is why this is of first importance. Is that I offered to you through the word of God this free gift of the gospel of salvation. Don't lose it. It's life and death here. Don't let go of it. And that gets us thinking about how the gospel remains for the believer the most precious of news. Thinking about how the gospel remains for the believer as the one points to Jesus as our great treasure. But how about the end of verse 2? Paul always wants to be clear here. He doesn't want anybody sauntering into heaven thinking they've got it made when they haven't truly trusted in Christ. He doesn't want to inoculate anybody from the gospel, if you know what I mean. Making them believe they have something that they don't have. So he says to them that you receive this good news, you stand in it, and you're being saved by it looking forward, past, present, and future, unless you believed in vain. Is that possible? Absolutely it is. 
And here, let me say this, in our context, in our plate, the uh, place, the, the buckle of the Bible belt here, I'm afraid far too more is this prevalent than we want to believe. That some would believe in vain. Some would have this idea that they're going and they're not going. And I'm terrified of that as a pastor. I don't want any of y'all to be surprised on the day that you meet the Savior face to face. So let me say this. What does he mean by this? How can you believe in vain? You can believe in vain by giving lip service to the truth of God's word, but not living it out every day in your life. The very nature of cultural Christianity, which cannot save you, the very nature of this thing is the idea that you can say you believe and your life looks entirely different. You can say you trust and you don't trust. The heart of cultural Christianity is not living what you say you believe and not giving your life to the very gospel. Paul says this gospel that you receive, which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word. By holding fast, he means if you let your life be defined by it. You don't let your life be defined by money. You don't let your life be defined by things in this world. You don't let your life be defined by whatever culture you may live in. You let your life be defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you hold fast to that, you will not believe in vain. But if you turn from that, if you give lip service to it because you know you think you may have a get-out-of-hell-free card, then Paul says, that's only believing in vain. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Consume the gospel, Paul says. And let this affect every part of your life. Know today that you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross and the fact that he rose again. And live every day in light of the fact that Jesus died and rose again for you. Paul says, unless you do this, you believe in vain. Don't believe in vain. Our beliefs will be evident in how we live. Do you believe this? Before you can ever get to the present or the future tense of the gospel, you've got to get to this place of have you received it? Have you taken that free offer and made it yours? Have you grasped a hold of the gospel like it is what it is, life and death? And if you don't have the gospel, you don't have anything. Have you grasped it in that way? Have you seen that God is a righteous and holy judge that you must answer to? And that in spite of what you all might be trying to do, your life is full of sin and you've turned away from God for the wages of that sin is death. But God, in his great mercy, has sent Jesus Christ to save you and redeem you. So you may be mad today that I'm calling you a sinner, but know, know that the scriptures called you that long before I did. And know that I'm speaking to myself as well. And know this. Don't let your frustration over that turn you away from the only hope that you have in Christ Jesus. God, man, Christ, that good news. And now what is the response? Receive it. It is a free gift offered to you today. Receive it. Child of God, stand in it. Hope on it. Let the gospel define who you are. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth. It is good. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that's our hope. 
And Father, I pray that everyone here today has that past tense. They can say today that they have received the gospel. And I pray that everyone here today has that present tense, that they are standing on it and they are hoping in it for the future. But God, just know. Just help them to know that the gospel is freely offered to them today. And if someone here today has not received your gospel by faith, that they would receive it even now. Even as I stand here, Father, may they receive your gospel and come to rejoice with me in the front of the church. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather. May you be glorified in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.